This morning we're going to be in the Gospel of John, John chapter 11. We're going to start off in verse 45. We're going to work our way all the way through chapter 12 and verse 11. But the first movement, the first half of this is going to see us bump right up to verse 53. And we only are in the Gospel of John as we go through the Lord's Supper together. And so let me just kind of reframe chapter 11 to to bring you back up to speed, kind of where we've been, what we're addressing, what we're looking at. John chapter 11, the key thing that happens is Lazarus being brought back from the dead. Now, it happens in, in a decidedly unconventional way. Jesus is alerted to the fact that Lazarus is dying, and he chooses to stay where he is to the point that when he arrives, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. For four days, a man that Jesus considered to be a friend, a man that Jesus uh, publicly wept over, has been dead, gone. It's not in a coma. He doesn't have a stomach bug. He is dead. They rolled a stone in the middle of the cave. He's not waking up. He is beginning to decay, and we get this as we look back in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 38 says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Now, this is where we remember that this is not a conventional move. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. There is nothing outside and, and extraordinary about the way that Lazarus died. Much like you or I, he got older, he gets sick, and he died. This is, this is the path that all of us are on. And there's nothing intrinsically wonderful about the way that he's going to smell. And this is why Martha says, hey, look. This is a big mistake. Don't roll that back. I don't know if you've been counting, but four days, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. This is like junior high boy uh, down uh, clothes, sports camp, two months later, stuck in your car, smelling with rotten flesh bad. It's bad, right? All those things come together. It's awful. Look what Jesus' response is. He said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he prays to the Father. Now look at what he says here after he gets done praying. Really simply, verse 43, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus is dead. They rolled the stone away, and everything in them, all their senses are heightened, and they're waiting on this wave of smell to come and to hit them, to be an affront to them. Stone gets rolled away. Jesus looks into the stone. He prays to the Father. and He says, Lazarus, come out. And what we see is this guy bound with linens comes stumbling out. Verse 44 said, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now I want you to cast your minds there. Imagine that you're in this place and you walk up and there is a stone covering this opening. And, and you've heard this guy has done amazing things, but you, you're following him there, and in your mind is wondering, what's he going to do? How's this going to work out? Is he going to go there? Is he going to encourage these two sisters, Mary and Martha? What is he going to do? You see the stone roll away, and your mind begins to race, and your heart begins to pound, and you're doing this number because of what you expect to happen. And then this guy comes out, and you're stuck. What he's done is something completely unbelievable. But you see it with your own eyes. What he's done is something completely amazing. And you're observing it. You're seeing it. You're watching it take place. And it's calling you to respond. The amazing thing 
is we see this happen, and then immediately we see people break into two camps. There are those who see this miracle happen, and they believe. There are those who see this dead man come out, and they believe in much the same way when you heard the gospel, and you heard about this man who was raised from death to life, and you believed, and it forever altered your life and your destiny. And so we resonate with these people, we understand these people, but the others of us who resonate with, with doubt, those of us who wrestle with this question of, is it real, is it true? We find ourselves not in the camp of those who believe, but we find ourselves in the camp of those in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. They did not believe. They both had the same occurrence take place right in front of them. They both observed the same things. They both were witness to the same events. You have one group that leaves changed, one group that leaves indifferent, and they go to report it to the Pharisees. Each and every encounter with Jesus always leaves us in one of two places. Deep belief, apathy, and rejection. So we find it's even the same in the midst of his teaching, as it is when we, we continue to share his words all these hundreds of years later. Look what happens. These guys show up, they go to the Pharisees, and they tell them what's happened to the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and they said, what are we to do? And so you've got these 70 men, the Sanhedrin gathered together. You've got the Sadducees, you've got the Pharisees, experts in the law, experts on tradition. They look at this and say, what in the world are we going to do? I mean, this is the hubbub of all these things. You have all these chiefs in a room together, and they're all just, what do you want to do? I don't know. Maybe, maybe we follow him. No, no, we can't do that. Don't say that out loud. You can't say that out loud in this room. Other people are like, well, maybe, maybe he'll fall away. Maybe this, like the computer is a fad, like the internet is a fad that will disappear and go away. <laughs> They said, well, I don't, know, I don't know what you're talking about with computers and internet, but, but, but no, I, th- I don't think this Jesus thing's going away. Look what happens. Verse 48. It says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. One of the things they recognized about Jesus is if he were allowed to continue to teach in the way that he had been, those who saw and walked away as they continued to see and observe would eventually fully buy in that the seed of faith would take root, that it would grow, that it would produce life in them, that they would find themselves unable to argue, unable to contend against the vast testimony of those things Jesus was doing in their midst. And so it created a problem for them. We said, look, we've got to do something. This guy's going around and he's teaching for crying out loud. He just brought a dead guy back to life. I don't know the last time you went to the grocery store, but this isn't something we observe. This isn't some first century thing that was commonly happening. Hey, what happened to you last Thursday? Well, you know, I went down and talked to my mother-in-law. On the way back, I healed a dead person back to life. Oh, really? So just kind of an average Thursday. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not normal for them. It's not average for them. Just as it's not normal, it's not average, it's not mundane for us. And so they see him as a real problem. They see him as somebody, look, verse 48, everyone will come to believe in him. And then the Romans come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. The primary problem the Sanhedrin had with Jesus was not the good stuff he was doing. In some sense, the the primary problem they had wasn't even that he was developing a following. The problem they had was that it was threatening to them. They would lose their stature, and they would lose, they said, we would lose our nation. They would lose their control over the people. 
to come and to serve Jesus calls us, demands us to submit ourselves before him. There is no posturing in when we're coming to Jesus. It's not like we come to him and we say, look, willing to have my life saved, willing to accept salvation, appreciate that. Thank you for dying on the cross and all, rising from the dead that will swell. You got to know. I'm not going to change anything to do with my life. I'm not going to quit lying. I'm not going to talk differently. I'm not going to engage in different practices. I'm not going to give money to the poor. In fact, I don't care about the poor. But the whole salvation thing sounds really great. Eternity in hell, that sounds awful. Don't sign me up for that. For sure, sign me up for salvation. That's what I want. You see, on the one hand, they like the fact that Jesus was creating excitement for them and for religion, but they hated what it would cost them. When we come to Jesus, we recognize it costs us everything. It costs us everything. We come to him with open hands and empty pockets, and we say, we bring nothing. You bring everything. Our life is yours. Make it as you would have it to be. We bring nothing. He's fully supplying us, fully equipping us, and fully saving us. And he does it from a place of absolute poverty, recognizing we're not good, we're not moral, we're not perfect, and he alone is. Amen? That's right. So he comes in. And Caiaphas, Caiaphas, you talk about a a chief among the group. Caiaphas comes in, and this is effectively what he says when you kind of boil it down to the language. You guys are stupid. Everybody's in the room and they're like, what do you want to do? I don't know. Maybe we could start a rumor about it. Maybe we could do this. Maybe we could change this. Maybe we could tie his sandals together. And every time he took a step, he would trip and fall. Everybody looks at him like, are you stupid? I mean, come on. That's the worst idea we've ever heard. Caiaphas comes in and he says, what is wrong with you guys? This is not such a difficult thing for us to figure out. What is wrong with you guys? You know, nothing at all. And then verse 50, look what he says. He said, nor do you understand that it is better that one man should die. One man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas comes in and he says something that strikes right at the heart of what we know to be the gospel. That God sent Jesus Christ to die for all of humanity. Now, Caiaphas comes in, and he doesn't say it in such a way as to say, look, this guy can have a meritorious death. This guy can be an atoning sacrifice. But he's using that language. Caiaphas comes in, and out of a sense of expediency, out of a sense of self-preservation, he wants to stay in his role. He likes the big house, the fancy car. Because of where he is in life, he says, this guy needs to die so we don't lose all this stuff. This guy needs to die so we don't lose all this stuff. It's better that one man should die than a whole people should perish. Look at verse 51. John begins to clue us in to this. He says, look, he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Offering commentary, he says, verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children and the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, key to the idea of of kind of Jewish expectation, their idea of kind of how God is going to bring these things and what it's going to be like for them when the Messiah does come, we see this this idea that everybody's going to be gathered into one people. There are all the the Israelites that have been scattered in the diaspora, those who have been relocated forcefully or otherwise, are going to be brought back together. And so he says that all the scattered ones are going to be brought back together. And we see this show up in Psalm 107, verses 1 through 3. Let me read it for us. 
The psalmist writes and says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Look at verse 3. And gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, and from the north and from the south. Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross of Calvary has the potential to gather all of humanity into one people. There is no political ideology. There is no pyramid scheme. There is no utopia. There is no perfect neighborhood. There is no perfect philosophy which can accomplish this. Only, only the atoning sacrifice of Jesus is able to be effectual in bringing all of humanity together. And it's because only the sacrifice of Jesus reconciles all of humanity to God. Do we understand this? So as we come and we think about taking the first of the two elements, as we come and we look at taking the bread, we recognize that his body was broken, and in that we face a decision. Would we be like those who who recognized the terrific works he did, the miracles he worked, and said, no, look, this is really too high a cost for me. This is really something more than I'm looking for. I'm looking at at salvation, yes, but but I really don't want anything else that goes with it. Jesus, the cost is too high. Or would we be like those who believed him on the basis of what he said and on the basis of what he did? In so doing, would we submit our lives and all that we have to Jesus? As we prepare to hand out the first of the two elements, I would ask that you would begin to turn your minds to reflect upon the sacrifice of Jesus and what he is calling you to do in light of his sacrifice. Let me ask the deacons to stand. ask that you would reflect upon that and we'll all take together at the end. Would you all stand as we prepare to take together? Reading out of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, we read these words. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Picking back up in verse 53, they get together. Caiaphas has this uh, statement of expediency. It's better that one man should die than the whole nation perish. And so on the basis of this, verse 53, it says, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Reading that on that day, they made a firm decision that he had to die. He had to die. From that day on, it was the the goal, the end goal, the plan of the Sanhedrin, of all the religious authorities of Jesus' day, to end what they saw as a real threat to their way of life. From that day forward, he had to die. Verses 54 and 55 kind of clue us into some things that take place in the middle of this. It says, verse 54, So Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness, wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. So Jesus, in the midst of this, goes about 25 miles away. We don't know how long he's there. We don't know what he does when he's there. But what we find out is the next time we pick Jesus back up, he is within two miles of Jerusalem. Look what happens to everybody else. Verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from their country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Passover's coming. 
They're headed to Jerusalem. They want to be cleansed. They want to have uh, effectively unrighteousness taken from them. They want to go have some sacrifices. They have to make some offerings on behalf of themselves. So they go to Jerusalem, ironically, to purify themselves. They're headed to try and achieve temporary purification for themselves when Jesus offers purification for sins once for all, for all eternity. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. They sought to accomplish purification for themselves. Not realizing the fact that Jesus' whole plan and purpose for humanity was to bring about eternal, lasting, enduring purification to make them holy before God from now and forevermore. Amen? Passover is coming. They're head up to purify themselves. And the hubbub around town is, have you seen Jesus? The Sanhedrin had effectively put a price on his head, an instruction that if you see this guy, you've got to come tell us so we can arrest him. So everybody's around. The type of conversations we see there at the end of chapter 11 is, have you seen him? Do you even think he will show up? What do you think he's doing? I mean, that's crazy. Have you heard the stories? And so everybody's all abuzz, all the Twitter about the things that Jesus has done and trying to figure out what's going to take place on the basis that the Sanhedrin has been so effective at communicating what their response to Jesus should be. You see Jesus, see something, say something. You see Jesus, you tell us so that we can handle the situation. And this is kind of what they're expecting. And so, in fact, Jesus does not show up at that point. Where do we find Jesus? Verse 1, chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave him a dinner there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. This guy that just some days prior, Jesus had raised from the dead, now is casually eating a meal blows my mind. You guys are sitting there like, oh yeah, I read that too. But imagine this, this guy was dead, and now he's like, hey Jesus, what's up? Can you pass the matzah? What's that? You said, oh, you, hummus, hummus, I'm in hummus, can you pass that? I like some matzah balls, what's up? I'm sure these are the type of conversations they were having. And so they're there in this situation, one of the things you pick up if you read the other accounts from the Gospels is they are not in Lazarus' home, they're not in Martha's home, they're not in Mary's home, they're in the home of Simon the leper. They are hiding out in some sense. There's been such an amazing uh, excitement centered around those things that have happened for Lazarus. You think it's bad if the paparazzi follow you around, you can imagine what it's like for Lazarus. He goes out to the grocery store and they're like... Uh, you know, now more on this story. Dead man raises from the dead and, and, and buys matzo balls at the grocery store. I mean, everything he did became news. And so he's hanging out at the house of Simon the leper. And his sister Martha is serving. Lazarus is laying on the floor. Now look at what happens here. Verse 3. Everybody's got their place. Lazarus beside the table. Martha serving. Everybody has their place. Look where Mary finds her place. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, or, uh, ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, so much so that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. In the first century, it was only reserved for the lowest of the low of the worthless of the no-stature household slaves to do anything concerning your feet. 
Even today, the thought of feet doesn't resonate with some people, right? We have people that are willing to touch others' feet, still not excited about it. Those people are called podiatrists, right? They get paid to touch people's feet. But, but by and large, feet are not something that we think about really wanting to have any desire to touch. And in his day, he's walking around with exposed feet. They're dirty. They're, they're, they're unclean. And what does she do? She goes and she spends a year's wages on perfume. If the minimum wage is you know, seven and a quarter and working, a hun- working 300 days a year, she takes all of that money and she buys the most expensive perf- perfume she can. She pours it out on Jesus' feet. In some sense, Mary gives us an understanding of where she saw herself in terms of where Jesus was. She found the most lowly, unassuming self-abasing form of service that she could manage, she threw her heart into it. It's not what Jesus demanded of her. It's not what Jesus expected of her. It's not what those in the room were just waiting to do. Oh, man, Mary got his feet again. She finds the most remarkable, loving, rejoicing thing that she can do. She goes up and she pours it on his feet. She lays down, puts her head beside his feet, and she takes her hair, which in the first century was her glory, and she begins to wipe his feet, to cleanse his feet, to take this pure nard and to rub it on his feet. She is showing Jesus demonstrably how much she loves him. Imagine this in your mind. She is laid out on the ground, tears likely running down, the whole room smells of the perfume, and she's pouring this, lavishing all of her love on Jesus. For Mary, there's no price too high. There's no call of service too low. There is no shame in loving Jesus with everything she's got. She gives us a beautiful picture. In fact, in two more chapters, Jesus turns around, he washes the disciples' feet, perhaps in line, taking a a clue and a cue from Mary. He loved them, he washed her feet. She loved Jesus, and she spent everything she had on this, poured it out on his feet, and used her glory to wipe his feet. Look at the response she gets. Now, John tells us that it's just Judas, but we recognize from the other accounts of the gospel that everybody's joining in. Judas responds... In verse 4 he says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? Effectively, why, why did you waste this on him? Why was it not sold for this and the money given to the poor? Verse 6 communicates and says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge over the money back, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas looks at it and he effectively says, this is a waste. You know, some of us in our acts of service, the things that God really lays on your heart, you can't rationalize those things. You can't explain them to people. Perhaps you have a, a card writing ministry. Perhaps you go and do prison ministry. Perhaps you work with the poor. Perhaps you go on mission trips. And you try and explain this to people. My love of Jesus compels me to serve him in this way. What song of service has Jesus given you to sing in your heart? What song of service has Jesus given you to sing? What act of service has Jesus given you to perform? What self-abasing, lowering of self and elevating him 
form of service has he given you? Does it come without a cost? Recognize there was great financial cost for Mary, there was great social cost for Mary, and there was instant rebuke towards her. Judas, the other gospel accounts tell us that everybody joined in and were indignant on the basis of this lavish display of love and sacrifice towards Jesus. You can imagine Jesus is laying there, he looks back, he sees her wiping his feet, he hears the indignation all around him, and he has this amazing response. There's this amazing response for all the consternation that's being stirred up in people's hearts. Leave her alone. Leave her alone. Jesus recognizes what Mary did was truly beautiful, lovely, and amazing. And it didn't require the validation of all those around uh, Mary to look at it and say, oh man, I wish I had done that, or this is such an amazing thing. It only took the validation of her king. Amen? Leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you'll always have, but you will not always have me. Jesus recognizes that in some sense, her anointing of him was preparing his body for the grave. Just as Jesus had raised Lazarus from the grave, so too Jesus would be raised from the grave, and this was preparing him to enter the grave. Something interesting happens in John's chronology, the way he reports this. He gives us this amazing picture of service performed by Mary, and then again he comes back to what's taking place. Look in verse 9. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Jesus was incognito in Bethany. Not a whole lot of people knew he was there, but when people found out, this large crowd amassed outside the home. But, but the interesting thing to observe is it's not solely to see Jesus, but it's also to see the effects of Jesus' work. They wanted to see the man that had been raised from the dead. And so the chief priest, verse 10, made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, I want you to focus on this. Why were people believing according to verse 11? People were believing according to verse 11 on the basis of what Jesus had done in the life of Lazarus. People were believing because of the testimony of Lazarus. Now it's remarkable. Jesus raised Lazarus up from the dead. Four days he'd been in the grave and Jesus called him back to life. But you know what's also amazing? What's also fantastic? And what's also spoken of within the Bible in terms of being raised from death to life? You. You. Ephesians 2 paints this horrible picture of where we all were. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were rotting spiritual flesh. We were the ones who should have been put into the tomb, had the stone rolled away so people didn't have to be subjected to how awful we were. We were, we were prideful, we were indignant, we were apathetic. In our spiritual pride, we were far off and removed and distant from God. But God in his goodness called us to come from that darkness, to come from that spiritual death, and he breathed life into these dead and dry bones. Amen? So we read this amazing account of Lazarus, and I think on the one hand when we read it, we say, look, 
my story is not all that interesting, you see, because I was never really a very vile person. I was always just a good person. I was never a person who somebody would look at and say they need some help, and so therefore they got the gospel. Recognize that we all needed help. Recognize you all still need help. We all still need the power of Jesus working in our lives today. We're frail, we're hurting. First Peter tells us that we are elect exiles. We live in a country that our citizenship doesn't reside in. And so we, we, we're awkward. We're homesick for a place that we've not been. If you are a believer in faith in Jesus Christ, then God has worked an amazing miracle in you. He has worked a miracle just like he did in Lazarus. He has worked a miracle to take someone who is dead and to make them alive. It's the most transformative thing that can ever happen to a person. You can take a jerk and you can make him nice. You can take an alcoholic and dry them out. You can take a drug addict and take away the needle. You can take away the cocaine. But you cannot make a dead person alive. Only Jesus can accomplish that. Every one of us has a story that is able to elicit profound transformation in the lives of others. And that story is Jesus has saved me. Whether you have some relatively mundane thing, you grew up, you always made A's, you always did what your mother told you to do and never what your father tried to encourage you to do. And, and, and everybody would only ever describe you as being a good and a right and a true person. And from the midst of being good and right and true, God radically saved you from enslavement to being good and caused you to be perfect in him. Or you're the person with a, with a wretched and marred you're a serial, adul- a serial adulterer, radically opposed to the things of faith, radically opposed to Jesus, living in outward, direct opposition to the gospel. And in the midst of this, he took your, cha- took your heart and changed your perversion and made it righteousness for him. Both of those things, only God gets the glory. All of us have an amazing story to share about how God has brought us from death to life. And all of us, if we would share that story with others, we would see people being brought to Jesus. Amen? As we prepare to to pass out the cup, reflect on the change that God has wrought in you, the change that he has made in you, and bringing you from death to life. Just as he brought Lazarus from the grave, so too he brought you from the grave. You are spiritually dead, and he has made you alive. Let me ask the deacons to stand and ask that you would reflect upon that and we'll all take together at the end.
Let me ask you to stand as again we read from Matthew chapter 26. Starting in verse 27, it says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it anew with you, my Father's kingdom. As we move into a time of application, let's turn our hearts towards what God is calling us to do. And so in this time, as we kind of corporately move towards that, we reflect upon Christ's sacrifice, we reflect, reflect upon his goodness, his body which was broken, his blood which was poured out, those things he is calling us to do, and those things he's recognize, calling us to recognize we are. You are redeemed. Not on the basis of some, some goodness that you've done, but on the basis of the goodness that he accomplished for you on the cross of Calvary. And, and when we come to the Lord's Supper, we recognize that we come with people with empty hands and open pockets and hearts needing renewal. All of us are in need. None of us is perfect. None of us is without sin. And so we come into this place graciously being refueled by our Father who brings every good, true, and perfect gift to our hearts. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's turn our hearts towards him in song and his goodness.